All right, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin to look at uh, the birth narrative of Christ found in Luke's gospel. And, uh, and let me get this thing, try again. With all the hand washing, my thumb is print is not recognized half the time anymore. Um, so as we look at uh, Luke chapter 1, I've titled this series, and it's going to be a series out of Luke chapters 1 and 2. And in fact, the application, I'm going to tell you right up front, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the gospel of Luke. Well, I'll tell you some of the reasons for that as we go through the message, but I want you to read Luke's gospel. And in fact, I remember uh, uh, when I was in the Navigators, Lauren Sani, who was the president at that time of the Navigators, said when he was talking about evangelism, he says, evangelism is taking one long look at Jesus and then telling people what you see. I think we need to take a long look at Jesus. This has been a difficult year, right? We need to take a long look at Jesus. This has been a tough year where our hearts have been torn apart by different things, by fears, by masks. It's amazing how mask has divided church families, has divided people, has divided families. And I think that shouldn't be. Romans 14 tells us to, to love one another and to, to not judge one another and, and not to sin against one another and to, and to seek peace. And I think, are we going to let masks separate us? When scripture tells us not to, I think about how many of us have gone through difficulties this year. In fact, I love this uh, thing I saw on Facebook. Oh, it's not coming up. It's not even a picture there. Is it? Uh, there it is. Uh, Times person of the year. I, don't, I think this was a spoof made up by somebody. I don't think this was rea reality. Uh, mayhem, if you remember the Allstate guy. Uh, uh, this guy uh, making 2020 his best year ever. <laughs> sure seems like this year mayhem kind of describes the year, right? All the things, the, the elections that we just went through, the, uh, I mean, just the, uh, the uh, shutdown of our country, the shutdown of our counties, uh, I mean, just all the different things that we have gone through over this last year, and we think mayhem. Here's what I want to say as I look through the Gospel of Luke. I don't want mayhem to define my year. I don't want mayhem to define our year. I want Jesus to define it. And we need to look together at the Gospel of Luke and we need to think about and read and get a good look at Jesus. And I think it will reorient our perspective on why we do what we do and how we live. I've titled this series, This is the Way. Now, I originally titled this series, Prepare Your Hearts. Because when you look at this passage, you see this idea of preparation is a big deal. John the Baptist came. Why did he come? John, uh, Luke 1.17 says, you'll, you'll hear me say, John, I mean Luke most of the time because I'm talking about John the Baptist. And so, um, anyway, in... Uh, Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1 verse 17 it says and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah now that phrase comes from Malachi the very last words of the Old Testament 
say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day before the Lord comes. And we find out from the Gospels that John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come. It says that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. You go, wait a minute, that's exactly what this is saying. So what is he saying? Elijah did come in John the Baptist. John the Baptist is that next prophet. Here you have the last prophecy of Malachi, 400 years of silence, and who shows up next? The prophet that was prophesied last in Malachi, John the Baptist. So Luke makes that very clear. He makes that connection very strong. He says, And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now here's something interesting. Who took the initiative? The first century people or God? God took the initiative. He took the initiative to prepare people's hearts. In fact, as I was wrestling with this issue of prepare your hearts, I realized I can't prepare my own heart. How can we prepare our own heart? I can't provide my own salvation either. Only God can do that. The heart's deceitful above all else. Who can know it? So my own heart's deceitful. How can I prepare a deceitful heart? And then I realized it was John the Baptist who prepared the hearts of the people. They couldn't prepare their own hearts. They needed John to come because I was asking the question, why John? Why couldn't Jesus just show up without John the Baptist being there first? Isn't Jesus enough? Oh yeah, he would be enough. But for some reason, God felt it necessary to bring John the Baptist. Now, I know you can say, well, yeah, he's got to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi, and so that's why he came. Yeah, but why did God make the prophecy back to Mal in Malachi? What was the reason for that? Because our hearts need to be prepared. And in fact, we see this throughout the first part of, of Luke in, in Zechariah's blessing. Uh, of, of, in Luke 1, 17, uh, 70, 76, sorry. It says, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go, go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So I thought, oh, well, maybe the title of the series should be Prepare His Ways. And I thought, no, 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 that's, that's John's job, preparing his ways. I can't prepare his ways. We can't prepare his ways. What is the timeless truth here? And, and so then I went further, and, and uh, you see the words of Isaiah the prophet in chapter 3. In verse 4, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And of course, we think of that phrase. We think of, if you were, ever watched Jesus Christ Superstar, you think of that song, prepare ye, you know that one, uh, that I'm not singing very well. <laughs> and so this idea of preparing the way for the Lord, and so that was John's job, to prepare the way. And what he did was to prepare, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. As I was wrestling with that, I thought, hmm, did he only prepare the first century people or us as well? There's a reason why Luke started with John the Baptist, so that every generation that reads John's story has our hearts prepared for Jesus. So what did John do? What were some of the things that he did to prepare hearts well, we see that he, uh, what he preached is a, is, a, is a crucial thing. In chapter 3, in verse th 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So my heart's prepared when I'm repentant of my sins. My heart's prepared when I come before God knowing that I'm a person that falls into sin like the first candle that we lit. That all of us cannot save ourselves. All of us are in need of a Savior. All of us are in need of forgiveness of those sins. And then he says in 3.8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so my heart's prepared when I'm beginning to bear fruit. That keeps, is, is in line with this idea of repentance. Where does that fruit come from? In uh, John chapter 15, we know that I abide in him and I'll bear much fruit. I don't bear fruit of my own. I only bear fruit when I abide in the vine. Otherwise, I bear only Greg fruit. I don't want Greg fruit. I want Jesus fruit in my life. And so I abide in him and that's the kind of fruit that I'm going to bear. And then he says in John 3, I mean in Luke 3, 15, as the people were in expectation. I thought, wow. This idea of expectancy. This idea of anticipation that when John came, he said, the Lamb of God is here among us. He's coming. He's going to show himself. He's getting ready to do his earthly ministry. And people, and created in the people a sense of anticipation, an air of expectancy. And I think, where is that preparation today in our world and among our lives? Are we living in this sense of expectancy and looking forward, or are we looking back on the year 2020? And what is our preparation? Is our preparation to putting out of garlands and lights? Is that our preparation for this season? You know, that's all right to do. There's nothing wrong with garlands and light. I love that kind of stuff. Love putting trees. In fact, yesterday I was putting lights up and trying to learn how to wrap a tree. I should have checked one string first because it was half burned out, but that's beside the point. You know, and so we do all of these things, and the question is, is those are great things. It's okay to have thoughtful gifts, but is my heart prepared? And is it prepared in such a way that I have repentance of sins, that I am bearing fruits in keeping with that repentance and abiding in Christ, and that I have this expectation, this anticipation that God is going to do something very special now, this month, this week, in, this, in my life, and in our lives, and in our church, and in our community, and in our world. Because that's what Jesus asked us to pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, inviting God to work, inviting God to act, and then expecting him to work, expecting something to happen. A.W. Tozer, talking about prayer, said, to pray without expectation is to misunderstand the whole concept of prayer and relationship to God. Let me read that again. To pray without expectation is to misunderstand the whole concept of prayer and relationship to God. Our lives should be lived in expectation. I remember uh, uh, years ago when we were looking to build a building, we ended up buying this one instead, but we were looking to build a building and, and I began to preach about Elijah and how he prayed and he prayed in it and that it would not rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years and then he prayed and it rained. And at the time, we were getting ready to lay a foundation, or we thought we were. And so our, our uh, contractor told us, hey, you need, you need a wet 
ground, it's going to be cheaper by about $100,000 if the ground is wet when we, when we pour the foundation for that foundation. So I, I came to the church family and said, we need to pray. <laughs> we need to pray that it rains, right? Just like in Elijah's day, we need to pray that it rains. And I said, when we pray that it rains, we also need to bring our umbrella. And so I hung my umbrella on the podium. And every week for four weeks, I hung the umbrella and people began to bring umbrellas. I said, if we're, if we're praying, we need to expect God to do it. And it began to rain. It rained a lot. That month it rained incredible amount. In fact, there were people saying, tell your church to stop praying for rain. <laughs> it was the month of November, I think. And uh, somebody brought me a newspaper article when there were such things of clipping and now you just send me a text, right? And I looked at it and I read it to the church family. It said, wettest month on record since 1896. Does God hear the voice of his people? Yes. Did we pray with expectation? Yes. Would it, have been, would it have been okay if God would have said no to us? Yes. But he said yes. Why did he do it? Because we didn't even need the foundation. I think he did it to build our faith. I took the picture of the, of the building that we were planning to build and just pulled it down. And I left up a word that was already up there. And it said faith. I said that's what God is building in us. He's not building a building. He's building a people of faith who believe him, who trust him. And I believe that that's what he wants for us as well. I believe that when we look at the gospel of Luke and we see John the Baptist, we're going to see that God wants us to be a people that anticipates, that expects God to work, and that lives with that expectancy. And so instead of titling this, Prepare Our Hearts, I began to realize God's preparing our hearts. This is the way it needs to work. And so I took this title, This is the Way. And in fact, it's actually interesting because I, I didn't expect for this title to, to make it this far in my thinking but uh, as, as to be the title of this series because this is a statement that if you watch The Mandalorian, it's a statement from The Mandalorian where they just, the, this Mandalorian says, when, when they say, this is what we need to do, and then he just looks and goes, this is the way, and the other Mandalorian goes, this is the way. You know, you kind of go, What? That sounds like what your mom would say when she says, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the way it is, you know. Uh, it's, it's just uh, 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 mom says, you know, so therefore it's going to be that way. Now, I, and I wonder, what is, it's a statement of faith on the part of this Mandalorian, right? And I thought, you know, it's a statement of faith for us. This is the way. This is God's way. And the interesting thing is, is the, word, the phrase, the way, Mandalorian takes that from Luke our gospel writer, he also wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the, word, the phrase the way is used to refer to the way of the Lord. It's, it's used to refer to the Christian movement that's coming about. They didn't have a name for it at first, and so they called it the way. Uh, they were called Christians in Antioch in Acts 11. But here's notice in Acts chapter 9, here's Saul... He's, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if any founding to, uh, any found, he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it's using that term, the way, to refer to the whole idea. And so I thought, this is the way. This is God's way. This is the way God intends. Belonging to the real way, not the Mandalorian way, but the real way, which is the way of Jesus. And from this phrase, belonging to the way, we belonging to the truth. 
Belonging to the Real Truth is the subtitle of the series. Acts chapter 19, speaking evil of the way. In Acts 24, according to the way. Acts 24, 22, accurate knowledge of the way. What way? In Acts 18, 26, it says that, it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this is Apollos, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more excellently or more accurately. The way of God. Prepare the way. What way? What way was John preparing the way of God? He was preparing God's way of truth. He was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And he was creating a sense of anticipation among the people so that they began to look forward to this coming Messiah that John begins to talk about. And he begins to say, we need to repent of our sins. We need to recognize who we are and who we are not. And we cannot save ourselves. We need to live in expectancy, in anticipation. A.W. Tozer said, true faith is never found alone. It's always accompanied by expectation. The person who believes the promises of God expects to see them fulfilled. Where there is no expectation, there is no faith. Wow. Wow. He goes on to say, because of that, we must declare a war on the mood of non-expectation and come together with childlike faith. So I think we too need to declare war on this mood of non-expectation. If it exists in our lives, if our only planning has been to plan everything around Christmas and not to plan for our hearts and to prepare our hearts, then we need to ask God, God, prepare my heart. Make my heart ready as, for you as a people prepared. A person prepared. And so, as I look at the Gospel of Luke, I realize that's where he starts. He starts with John. And he wants us to understand this idea of expectancy, this idea of repentance. And so he begins to lay out the story for us. And so I want to, as we read through, I'm going to do some reading of the text and then I'm going to stop and explain a little bit and then do a little bit more reading and then stop and explain. And I'm, so I'm going to take that style this morning because this is such an incredible passage. He starts in chapter 1 and verse 1, and this is Dr. Luke, by the way. Uh, he's uh, in Colossians 4. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, is what Paul calls him. And so we've got Dr. Luke, a friend of Paul's, a guy that, that was accompanying him on some of the missionary journeys, saying this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, and you think, uh, many have undertaken. So he was aware of other attempts to write a gospel about Jesus Christ perhaps aware of Matthew and Mark. In fact, you see these called the synoptic gospels, and so most likely there is some borrowing that takes place, or at least reminding, oh yeah, I need to talk about that story and tell my perspective on it. He says, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, among us, he uses the word us, the pronoun us. We see that in the book of Acts where he uses the pronoun we. And so you know that at those moments, Luke is present. And then at other moments, he's not. Other trips, he's not because he refers to them and they. But he refers to us and we at the times that he's, at, uh, that he's a part of it. And so he's saying that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so who were these eyewitnesses who were from the beginning? Well, if you think about the beginning, you got Mary and Joseph, 
Now, Joseph passed away, most likely, because we don't see him in the Gospels, and so Mary must have passed him along. And we do see Mary in Acts chapter 1, and so she was there with the disciples during that moment. She had lived through all of these things. And when you look at these events, you go, yeah, everything that's been talked about, Mary could have been an eyewitness to the shepherds, uh, 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 Elizabeth's uh, the, uh, delivery of her child. I mean, all of that stuff. You could have the shepherds, but those would probably be hard to find. You'd have the wise men, but Luke doesn't report about the wise men, and so most likely he wasn't able to speak to them. He would have had to make a long trip to the east to find these guys. And they may not have even been around by 60 A.D. after all. And so he, I think he interviewed Mary. And maybe anybody else that, might, that she might have recommended. Ministers and I are... Uh, from the beginning, where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The word Theophilus, or the name Theophilus, comes from two Greek words, Theos and Phileo, meaning friend of God. And so he's writing to friend of God. And some think that, oh, it's just generally anybody who's a friend of God, these are the things you need to uh, be able to begin to read to find out who Jesus is, in fact. Some think that it's actually a person. The name Theophilus was a common name in those days. And because it gives a title, most excellent, they think this must have been an actual person. Was he a believer or a non-believer? We don't know. If he was a believer... Then, then Luke is writing these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught and believe. If it's an unbeliever, it's so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so that you may believe. We don't know. But we do know that Luke wanted to lay these things out. He did the research necessary in order to understand these things, and he writes these things for us so that we may be certain about what we have heard. And so then he begins the account in verse 5. In the days of Herod, and this would be Herod the Great. He, Herod the Great was a guy who was, uh, the, uh, we're told here, king of Judea. He was a puppet of Rome. Rome had declared him a king. Rome had declared him the king of the Jews. It's one of the reasons why when the wise men showed up and say, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? It would have kind of ticked Herod off. He would have been very upset because he was also a very jealous guy. He was so jealous that he killed a wife and, and several of his sons because he was jealous of his own family, that they were going to get more prominence than him, that they might be taking the throne from him, and so he killed them off. And in fact, uh, Caesar even said, Augustus Caesar said, it'd be better to be Herod's pig than his, one of his family members uh, because he was so ruthless in what he did. Herod was such a ruthless guy that whenever he, he, wrote, he, he told the nation, when I die, I want you to kill the Sanhedrin so that way at least you'll be sorry that I'm dead. All the religious leaders, he wanted, I mean, he was just a ruthless king, a ruthless leader, and so that's giving you kind of the, the scenario of what they're growing up in is there's a reason why they were longing for this deliverer to come to throw off the shackles of Rome. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You just see a name. A person in the first century would have seen the name Yahweh remembers. 
Yahweh remembers. He hasn't forgotten you. In the midst of Herod the king being this ruler, being this one who was, who was bringing such hardship upon your life, God still remembered. And through a guy named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, in fact, the priest were a subset of the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi were those who were the religious leaders in the land. They were those who would take care of, of the, of the needs that were that would accompany temple worship and they were they had they didn't have land allotted to them they just had cities that they dwelled in and they would be the ones who would would help the priests the priests were were a subset of the levites they were those who were of the line specifically of Aaron and we find that Zechariah was a priest but Elizabeth was also of the line of Aaron and so you, you begin to realize this John the Baptist is going to be a priest kid, a PK, right? He's going to be somebody who grew up around the Word of God, but you can imagine that there would be some other things going on in his heart as well. It would be real easy for him to be someone who said, I don't want any of that, because he would hear about all the weaknesses and, and all the infighting, and yet he was committed. It says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And I think they were people that had their hearts prepared. They were people that recognized their own sinfulness and, and they began to want to live in the right manner. And so they were trying their best to prepare their hearts, but you're going to see later in this passage, even then you couldn't be completely prepared for what life throws at you. And in fact, we see that in the very next verse. It's interesting that they just stick these two verses together, walking blamelessly before the Lord, but they had no child. You go, what? Wait a minute. I thought if you followed God, everything would be smoothed out in your life. Not the pain of not having a child. And you know it was a painful thing because in verse 25 it says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. That was seen in those days as a reproach if you were, uh, couldn't have children. And so here she was, she was going through a great and a deep pain. But they had no child. We think that if we live for God, everything is going to be rosy and, and go well for us. And that's not necessarily the case. There are things that are hard in this life. And yet they didn't become bitter you can imagine, they, it could have said that they became both bitter because they had no child. No, they were walking blamelessly, righteously, not blaming God. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. What was getting ready to happen was a miracle. Beyond childbearing years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, now, all of a sudden you have this explanation about the priesthood. And so you realize this is probably not a Jewish audience that Luke's writing to. What kind of audience is he writing to? Uh, there have been those who have looked at the four Gospels and they said, well, obviously Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and obviously John's writing to a believing audience. Mark is writing to a Roman audience and Luke to a Greek audience. And you see that because you see that this explanation of something that Jews, you wouldn't have to have explained to them. And so I'm glad for Luke. I'm glad that he had this time of explanation. It says, it was according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot 
to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, it talks about the, his division was on duty. They were, the, the priests were divided into 24 divisions. And so they served two weeks a year. That's 48 weeks out of the year. And then they had the, the holidays, the, the, the great celebrations of Passover and, and Feast of Tabernacles when all the priests would be on call. But they had those two weeks where their specific division was in charge. And you can imagine how many priests that was. You were only two weeks a year you were there. And one priest gets chosen to be able to do the sacrifices or, or the incense, the altar of incense. And so this was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so this idea that they were chosen by Lot is, is that God was in charge of the Lot. God made sure that it was Zechariah who was chosen that day. And it says he chose by Lot, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, that sounds like a simple thing. So let's kind of walk through the, that week in the life of Zechariah. He would have started out walking up the southern steps of the temple. These, these steps actually have been found, some of them. Uh, uh, and so uh, this is a picture of the actual steps that, that are found. Uh, when you, and, and my microphone quit, didn't it? Did it quit? Oh, no, there it is. Uh, the, uh, when these steps to sit on these steps and we get to talk about some of the events that happened there and so here's Zechariah going up those steps he goes through these these two gates that are here there's two sets of gates called the Huldah gates named after the prophetess Huldah and they go up these particular steps and they would appear out on the temple floor itself they would come up the steps out these little uh, things here and they'd be out on the floor of the temple this part of the temple right here would have been the court of the Gentiles the Gentiles could be here this was the place where Jesus overturned the, the table of the money changers saying hey this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations the Gentiles are supposed to worship here and what are you doing you're selling and you're keeping them excluded and shutting them out they're already excluded by this wall this wall right here uh, keeps uh, Gentiles from going into the temple enclosure. This, this wall was a little short, about four-foot wall, four-foot wall, and, uh, and it had its signs on it. They found one of those. It says, any Gentile that passes this wall has himself to blame for his, his death which will ensue. So he was, no Gentile was supposed to pass by this. So Zechariah would have come up the southern steps, Onto the, into the court of the Gentile, past this wall, through the beautiful gate where John and, and uh, Peter found the guy lame from birth and, and healed him. They, they would walk out, uh, Zechariah would have walked onto this court of women. And the court of women was surrounded by the treasury. The treasury had 13 trumpet-shaped metal containers where... Um, there were signs that said, this goes toward this particular project. And these were special offerings that were beyond their normal giving. This is where Jesus would have talked to the disciples about the widow who gave her two mites. Because they would have washed her, put them in there. And so then the men could continue on. And Zechariah would continue on up the 15 steps into the Nicanor Gate. And when he'd go through the Nicanor Gate, immediately on his right and left there was a portico that went all the way around the court of priests and it was the court of Israel 
and men could be in that court of Israel. And then Zechariah would have gone past the burnt, uh, altar of burnt offering where, where the animals were offered and the bronze sea where, where, on, the, on the oxen. And he would have walked around that and entered into the temple. As he entered into the temple, he would see something along the order of this where there was the curtain between the Holy of Holies, behind the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Behind that curtain was the altar uh, of God, and there was the, uh, between the cherubim. And so he could, he could go here, and you see this little tiny part of it is the altar of incense. You see the menorah and, and the table of showbread, just simple furnishings in this, in this temple. And so he would have gone and stood beside the altar of incense, probably not much bigger than this table. And yet it had horns on each corner, and there was a, a number of rituals, and, and the incense would burn. And the incense purpose was, it was the prayers of the saints. And in fact, we see that happening because uh, the whole multitude of the people, verse 10, were praying outside at the hour of incense. The hour of incense would have been before the morning offering or after the evening offering, around 3 in the afternoon. So here's him showing up. He, he walks in each day through that process. We don't know what day this happened on. But all of a sudden on the right side, can you imagine? Ook. Whoa, what is this? I mean, just somebody, I mean, anybody appearing, if you're working on something, and all of a sudden you look up and there's somebody there you didn't expect. But to have an angel standing there must have blown his mind. In fact, we know that he was, he was troubled says in verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What was he praying? Was he praying for a son at that moment? I'm not, I don't think so. I think he was praying for the salvation of Israel. I think he was praying for the Messiah to come. And the angel comes and says, your prayer has been answered. The Messiah is coming. And here's how you're going to be a part of this. He says, your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. What? Not Zechariah Jr.? No, John. John means Yahweh has been gracious. God has been gracious. God gives. And you will have, and there's six things that, that, that he promises. You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. And you see that throughout the beginning of Luke. There's this, this attitude of joy through the beginning. There's the Magnificat, which we sang part of this morning. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The song of Mary. And then we see a second song that's a song of Zacharias called the Benedictus by some because of the first word in Latin. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Then we see the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which is the angel's song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then we, sing, we see another song by Simeon that we'll, we'll look at at the, uh, uh, the Sunday after Christmas called the Nunc Dimittis or the Song of Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He held Jesus when he was being, off, uh, he was being brought up before the temple 
uh, uh, to, uh, uh, for the presentation of the firstborn. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Incredible. And he will turn many to the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children, so to change families and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah, you'd think, man, he would believe, right? No, he didn't. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel, and the angel answered to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I mean, you almost can, I mean, I don't know that he said it that way, but I, I would, I, if I were Gabriel, I'd probably, come on, man. I stand in the presence of God. How do you, I mean, how wouldn't I know this? I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, the, the gospel, the euangelion. He says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. So here's a guy that God used that was a guy that was called righteous, blameless, a priest from the line of Aaron, but he didn't believe. You would think that at that point God would say, up, oh, done with this guy, next, right? No, God used somebody who was struggling in their faith, somebody who was not perfect, and it just gives me great hope and encouragement to realize God used him, he can use us. He says, he says, you did not believe my words. And you see, Mary was different than that. In fact, we see this kind of uh, uh, series of uh, pictures that Luke gives to us. And you might want to take a picture of this. I'm not going to leave it up real long. But this idea of Zechariah was a guy that kind of represented unbelief. Mary represented somebody who believed because when, when she even asked a similar question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Elizabeth later says, and blessed is, he, is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so that she's an example of faith. Elizabeth, an example of joy whenever uh, she encounters uh, Mary with uh, uh, Jesus in her womb. Zechariah, who finally comes around and, and when he finally gets his uh, words about him, he's able to speak again, he begins to praise God. And then we have the worship of the shepherds. And then we have the Simeon and Anna, a song of blessing. And so you have all these different things going on in Luke's gospel as he's preparing us to understand who this Jesus is, to live in this air of anticipation. It says, and the people were wondering about his delay in the temple and when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went home. So he continued to serve for the rest of his time. So we know it wasn't at the end of the week. We know that he was continuing to serve. It says, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. So here she was, uh, for some reason, social distancing in this first century time. We don't know why. doesn't say. But it says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So here's a guy, Zechariah, who's just going about his day. God typically does that when we just going about living our, our life, serving him, he shows up. He shows up 
just right close to Zechariah. I mean, no social distancing on that deal. And he, and, he, and he wants Zechariah to know, God is going to use you. He's going to give you a son, and this son's going to be an incredible son. He's going to be a prophet like the prophets of old. And, and it's going to be, he's going to cause trouble for the priestly class because he's going, to, he's going to speak of repentance and he's going to speak against the, the things of this age. But he's going, to, he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And people are going to listen. And people are going to repent of their sins and they're going to live with an air of expectancy. And I was thinking about our own day. Are we living in a spirit of expectancy how can we have our hearts prepared, not only this Christmas, but every day of our lives? I want us to, to live with this air of expectancy. Expect God to work. Expect God to do something. I would encourage you, maybe if you need to, put it on a, a little card or something and tape it to your mirror or put it by your alarm clock when you wake up in the morning or by your phone when you wake up in the morning. This says, expect what God is going to do. The father of modern missions, William Carey, said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I don't want COVID and mayhem to define 2020 for me. I want Jesus Christ and our anticipation that he's going to work even in the midst of what has happened, even in the midst of this pandemic, that he's going to do something significant, that there's going to be revival that breaks out because people realize their need for him. I don't know what God is doing exactly, but I live with a spirit of anticipation. I want to live that way. I want to live every day of my life that way. As I was looking at quotes from Tozier on this expectancy, he said that we must declare a war on the mood of non-expectation and come together with a childlike faith. I think we need to do that. I think that we need to be a people who, who live looking to him in childlike faith, what he's going to do here, now, in the 21st century, in Mansfield, in our homes. Let it start with us, that we live with a spirit of expectation. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for your incredible love for us. I pray that you would help us to live expecting that you're going to work, expecting that you're going to change our lives, expecting that you are going to touch people's lives, change hearts, move our country in a direction that it's supposed to be. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who live with that air of expectancy, looking forward, not back. Help us to look forward to what you're going to do. We invite you into our world. We invite you to work in and among us. We invite you into our homes, Father, that you would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. Lord, that, that you would turn the hearts of the parents to their kids, that you would turn the hearts of the fathers and mothers to their children, that you would start with us, that we would love the Lord our God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength first, and then we would pass it on to our children. And teach them when we stand by the way, when we sit down, when we walk, when we rise up. Lord, I pray that you would move us. Lord, we come to you with a heart of repentance. We, we admit to you, Father, that we've gotten distracted this year by mayhem. And we don't want that to define this year for us. 
Lord, I pray that we would be those who keep our focus on the kingdom, that we keep our focus on kingdom work, that we keep our focus on, on Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we keep our focus on what you desire for us to do, that we abide in you, and that by abiding in you, we'll bear much fruit. We look forward to the fruit that's going to come through this year, in this time, in this generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.